And we look sometimes at, at our own lives. And that is the best thing to critique, is to critique oneself. And have you ever made the grand mistake of passing up on God's grace? In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul begins to write something to comfort us. But in that comforting, we have to realize that there is a catalyst to the things that we go through in life. And I want to look at real, real quick, briefly, to put us in a certain mindset. I want to look at what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10. I want to start at that 13th verse. Matter of fact, for the context purposes, let's start at verse 12 to make sure we understand the context that Paul is writing this. In 1 Corinthians 10, starting at verse 12, Paul says, if you think you are standing strong, I'm reading from the New Living Translation, by the way. Verse 12 says, if you think you are standing strong, be careful not to fall. Verse 13, he says, the temptations in your life are not different from that of any other's experience. And God is faithful. He will not allow you, allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. I would really rather read it out of the King James for you. Some scriptures, the Elizabethan language or the King language makes a better point. And I want to look at it in the King James Version real quick. Once again, starting at verse 12 in the King James Version, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he says, Wherefore, let him that think he stand take heed, lest he fall. Verse 13, he says, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted above that which you are able. But with the temptation also will make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Don't pass up God's grace. Everything that's happening on earth is happening to all of us. Saved or unsaved. There's nothing happening that's not common to all men, Paul said. Says that God is going to always show us a way out. And I would like to define that at this point as God's mercy. Giving us a way out. Because most of the things we get in, we get into it on our own behalf. Hallelujah. But God is faithful. Come on, somebody say God is faithful. Throughout Scripture,
scripture, what I've noticed throughout scripture from Revelations and now, we, I'm sorry, from Genesis and now we're in Revelations, what I've noticed is that God is continuously reaching out with an open hand to a stiff-necked people. And we would understand and agree that in the Old Testament uh, wilderness experience, we see that that is true of the Old Testament saints. That they were stiff-necked and arrogant and each and every time God would reach out to them to try to uh, bless them, for lack of a better term, to try to prosper them, to try to lift them up, to try to keep them from bondage, to try to keep them out of harm's way, they would become arrogant and stiff-necked and begin to believe, as uh, 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 Moses wrote in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 8, around that 17th verse, the people have a mindset, and I want to encourage you, that's just not in Deuteronomy chapter 8 back in Moses' time. I want to be able to translate this into our time that some of us feel like it's our hands that went out and got our wealth. But I thank God that he placed on Moses' heart to write Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18, where he says, you better remember, it is God who has given us the power to go out and obtain wealth. And look, it even, I love that verse because it even goes further to tell us why. He really says it's got nothing to do with you. He says it's because of the covenant or the promise that I made with your forefathers. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So in God's love and his grace and his mercy and his patience, his forgiveness, his long-suffering, his kindness, his meekness, his gentleness, and all of those things that describe God, God is still even in 2021 AD, reaching out to a stiff naked arrogant people who refuse, the Bible told us in Revelation chapter 10, uh, 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 chapter 9, refuse to do things God's way. So real quick before we start, I want to uh, go and in, 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 in through and bring us up to speed on how we got here. But before we do, I want to encourage you today not to be presumptuous when it comes to God. The Bible says in the book of James, don't go around saying what you're going to do tomorrow because you don't even know if you're going to be here tomorrow. He says that we should say, if the Lord will, we're going to do this or that tomorrow. Don't be presumptuous. Don't take God's love and his grace and his mercy in vain. Don't allow pride, money, fame, fortune, or worldly desires make you pass up God's offer of his love and his grace and his mercy. I like to say, oh, what a tangled web we weave as we live our lives. But we just read that Paul said that God is faithful. That for every situation and circumstance we get ourselves into, they always the devil. Quit blaming stuff on the devil. Y'all know my little joke about the devil going to heaven and, and when the, the devil got in heaven, he was crying and, and God say, why are you crying? He say, because they down there blaming stuff on me that I had no part in. And a lot of times it's God, even in his permissive will, allowing things to happen in our life to move us to the next level. But how many of us can be honest today and say most of the things I've gotten into in my life, I did that out of my own fleshly lust? 
There's some things that we're going to have to go through. There's some things that we're going to have to see. Come on, let's take off. Tell, tell your neighbor, buckle up. Buckle up. Amen. Come on, so real, real quick in our review. I want to start back at Revelations chapter 1 so that we may be able to understand what is going on throughout this process. I'm going to try as hurry as I can, as fast as I can, uh, to get to the review. I'll slow down once I get to my starting point today. But this is just review in case somebody's watching for the first time. They'll be able to get a different perspective of the book of Revelations because in Protestantism, so many people don't want to deal with Revelations. Uh, because it's written in, uh, it's written symbolically, and there's a lot of symbols in there, and a lot of the symbols are, uh, for lack of a better term, scary, and people don't want to deal with it. So he starts off in uh, verse, I'm sorry, chapter one of Revelation, and we understand that this is the introduction uh, of the book, and most uh, books in the Bible, chapter one is an introduction. And once we get to the introduction, we see John now begins to uh, not also not only introduce uh, himself and Jesus as the main characters, he also introduces the seven churches. And in this vision of the Son of Man, which begins in verse 12 of chapter 1, we see that he gives a, a physical description uh, with physical human attributes. He says how his hair is, how his eyes are red, and how his feet are shining like burning bronze. And I always like to point out here, especially to black people, because we've been so downtrodden in this country to make ourselves feel a part of. We always try to prove that Jesus was black by the scripture, but you can't prove that he was black because black is an American phenomenon. We don't need to be defining one another about how bright or dark we are. And it says that his feet was like burning bronze, which, was, which is actually a, a shining golden color. And if you've ever been to that part of the world, uh, 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 in, in the Arabia uh, arena or in Jerusalem, you'll see that there's uh, 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 God's people that come from that part of the world. Let me state this real quick. The Bible says many, many times emphatically that God's people have been scattered all over the world to the four corners of the earth. So that's technically, if, if one of the major prophecies is that God's people are going to migrate back home from the four corners of the earth when it's time for Jesus to come, that tells me that the people that's living in Jerusalem and Israel right now, uh, a, a vast majority of them may not even be the real original people that was that's supposed to be in that land. Why? Because the Bible tells us over and over that they have been scattered all over the world. And one of the major prophecies is that they're going to return home from the four corners of the earth. So let's stop trying to prove ethnicity because the Bible gives us Jesus' ethnicity. We don't have to sit here and debate about how bright or dark his skin was because we know that Jesus was born to Mary and Joseph and we meet them as devout Jews. So stop the madness with trying to prove uh, everybody draw Jesus. The reason Jesus looked like he's in the Bee Gees and all of the pictures we have is because it was an Italian that drew him. So he drew him in the mindset of an Italian. We all know that's not what, what Yeshua looked like. Hallelujah. Amen. So we get to chapter 2 and 3 of Revelation and that's the letters to the seven churches. And what I want to point out about these letters to the seven churches is simply that uh, that was written for our edification and our admonishment because even though we're living in 20, 2021, the year 2021 AD, 
which uh, means that we are living about 2,000 years from Yeshua living on earth. There should be some characteristic of one of these seven churches that fit your church, and it don't have to be one. You may have a multitude of characteristics uh, from these seven churches in Asia Minor that fit our church today. And I also like to point out at this time, when you're doing your study of the seven churches, there's two that didn't get any reprimand at all. And Jesus used, uh, in these uh, letters to the seven churches, he instructed uh, John to use uh, what we like to call a Jesus sandwich method, or what I learned was a Wiggins sandwich method, to where if you're going to counsel somebody, this can help those of us that's in leadership, whenever we're counseling some of our subordinates, we should always start off with telling them something good, put the reprimand in the middle, and end with something good. And that way it would be more palatable or acceptable to the person uh, to accept our corrective criticism as leaders. Jesus showed us proper counseling and leadership style through those letters to the seven churches. Amen. So by the time we get to chapter 4, we enter the throne room of God in chapter Revelations chapter 4. And in the throne room of God, what I want to point out only in review is, is that in Genesis chapter, I'm sorry, in Revelations chapter 1, when we get a description of Jesus, the Son of God, get description with human characteristic. His, his, his hair was white uh, and like wool. His eyes was red. His feet was like burning bronze. He even had clothes on it. said he had a robe with a sash across it. But when we get to the throne room of God, and now because this is where the true vision starts, and John the Revelator is now beginning his vision, and in the throne room of God, he does not give human characteristics as he describes God. He says, I see one that's sitting on the throne. And the one that's sitting on the throne, he uses terms of brilliance, of shining like uh, pearls and rubies. Let me, let me go to it so I can read it to you. In the throne room of God, uh, he says, uh, and come up, and the one, verse 3, he says, the one sitting on the throne was as brilliant as gemstones, like jasper and like carnelian, and the glow of an emerald circled the throne like a rainbow. You see, so what he saw was God's glory. Now, not the primary definition of glory, uh, but the, about the second or third definition, because when you do know, when you look up words, there's a primary definition, a secondary uh, definition, and a third definition. Uh, and the third definition for the word glory is illuminate. So what he saw was the glory of God, because the Bible even tells us when we read further along in Revelation, we're going to see that the Bible says that in heaven there's going to be no sun and no moon and no stars there. Why? Because the glory of God or the illumination or the light of God is going to light up the whole place. The light of God and the Lamb, the Son of God. Hallelujah! Amen. So that's what I always like to point out about the throne room of God is we didn't get a physical uh, human characteristic about God, about God the Father. Hallelujah! Then when we get to uh, the fifth chapter of Revelation, we see now that the one who was sitting on the throne, God the Father, the one who was illuminating, the glory was shining, he had a scroll in his right hand. And whenever you read in the scriptures, it, it says something that happened on the right side or in his right hand, that's a term meaning righteous. So we understand that this is a righteous scroll. This scroll is righteous and true. And it points out to us that the scroll was not only written on one side, that there was writing on the inside of the scroll as well as the outside of the scroll. Now, let me, let me show you what's so important about that. Because when we begin to read Revelation, especially in chapter 4, when the vision starts, you have to understand, come on, let's go to Revelation 
uh, real quick, chapter 6. Because I want to show you so you can keep in mind exactly what's going on. So in Revelation chapter 5, before we go to chapter 6, I want to finish chapter 5. We see now that there was a scroll in the hand of God, the one who was sitting on the throne, but there was no one found worthy in heaven or on earth to undo the scroll or to actually even go get the scroll out of the Father's hand. And John, the Bible says, began to weep bitterly. But the angel, hallelujah, told him, don't weep because behold, there is the Lamb of God, hallelujah. And he says he looked and there was a lamb who looked as though he had been slaughtered from the foundation of the world. But the lamb, the son of God, who the lamb represents, he was worthy. And somebody say that he's worthy. Hallelujah. He's worthy to walk up to the throne of God. He's worthy to take the, a scroll out of God's hand. But not only is he worthy to walk up to God's throne, not only is he worthy to take the scroll from his hand, we get ready to see that he's also worthy to begin to open the seals. So as we go uh, to chapter 6, we'll see now that as, now, now let's make sure we read this clearly because I want you to understand how this process is working. In Revelation chapter 6, right at verse 1, John says, as I watched. John is the writer. Hallelujah. And he says, as I watched the lamb begin to break the seals and open the scroll. So it's Jesus that still has the scroll. It's Jesus that's unloosing the seals. And as he unlooses the seals, he's reading, but John is visualizing. Because John is having vision. Now, I brought up the example. Uh, each time we go through this, I bring up the example of those who are avid readers. And you understand that the book is always better than the movie. Let me show you why. Because when we read a book, we get to form imagery and pictures of what we're reading on paper. But our mind does not think in words. Our mind thinks in pictures. Hence the word imagination, which the root word imagination is image. So we actually think in pictures. So as Jesus is unloosening the scroll and the words of the scroll are being revealed, the revelator is now having visions of what the scroll is saying. I need you to understand that because it's, it's important for you to understand revelations. So it's Jesus that still has the scroll. It's Jesus that's breaking over the, open the seals, but it's John who's having the visions and writing down what he saw. Everybody okay with that? Then we get to the, 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 the breaking of the seals. And when he broke the, the first seal, there was war on earth. When he broke the second seal, there was violence on earth. When he broke the third seal, there was economic imbalance on the earth. And when he broke the fourth seal, there was death on earth. But then we get to this fifth seal and things change. Things stop being destroyed on earth and now God starts identifying his people. Now you have to bear in mind that this is a vision. The people that are martyred for God are not already under the altar. This is a future vision. Because the reason that's so important for you to realize, because there's still people today that's being martyred for the word of God and their testimony about Jesus Christ. So John is seeing in a vision what's going to happen in the future. Hallelujah. So God has a certain segment of the society that's willing to die for him, that's actually going to die for him. And when we get to heaven, their place is going to be under the altar at the feet of the Lord. 
Because we understand that the altar always sits right before God. Then when we get to breaking the sixth seal, everything is ready to get destroyed. Destruction is ready. He's ready to destroy everything. But when we open up chapter 7, we see that another angel comes into the picture and he stops those that stand at the four corners of the earth holding back the wind because the destruction on the earth is getting ready to begin. But the angel comes and he says, wait, stop, don't destroy the earth yet. I have the seal of God in my hand and I need to seal 144,000 people. And the Bible tells us that that 144,000 people are encompassed or are, are made up of uh, 12,000 people from each of the tri tribes of Israel. And one of the first huge mathematical equations we learned as children is 12 times 12 equals 144. Hallelujah. So this 144,000, the Bible tells us, has the seal of God on them. And we're going to see later uh, when we see uh, uh, chapter 14, when we talk about the 144,000 specifically, it says that the seal was on their forehead. Mm -hmm. And then after the 144,000 are marked, we see also in chapter 7 that there was a multitude from every, uh, let me make sure I read, I read it right, hallelujah. He says, uh, verse 9 of chapter 7, he says, after this I saw a vast crowd, too many to count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language. That's everybody. That's everybody. From That's not everybody 100%, but that's from every nation. In other words, it's going to be some people that's not Caucasian in that number. There's going to be some people that's not Afrocentric in that number. There's going to be some Asian people in that number. There's going to be some Arab people in that number. Because he says that there's going to be people from every tongue, kindred, and nation standing in this crowd that's going to be uh, identified as God's people. So what God is doing is God is identifying his people before the destruction happens. Because remember now, in chapter six, at the end, in, starting at uh, verse six, I'm sorry, verse twelve of chapter six, it says that they were prepared to destroy everything when the sixth seal was over. But at the beginning of the seventh chapter, he says, "Wait a minute, don't start your destruction yet. I got to mark God's hundred and forty-four thousand." And after the hundred and forty-four thousand was marked, there was a grand number that no man could count that was identified as God's people as well. Remember, this is a futuristic. Vision. This is not something that is happening at the time John is seeing. These are things that's going to be happening in the future. Then we get to chapter 8 and we see now, matter of fact, Elder mentioned this this morning. I want to point this out in verse 14 about that multitude in verse 14 of chapter 7. About that great multitude that no man can count. When we get to chapter uh, verse 14, it says that these are they that came through or made it through the great tribulation. And I did point out to you that the New Living Translation is the only translation out of the 20 or 25 that I read. It's the only translation that uses the word that these are the ones that died in the Great Tribulation. Terrible translation. The, all, all other versions of the Bible says these are the ones that came through or came out of the Great Tribulation. So there's going to be those of us who have to go through the Tribulation, but we don't make it. Hallelujah. Why? God has identified us as his people. Somebody should be shouting right there. See, you're still really wondering if you're a child of God. You're really not sure. 
If somebody asks you if you're saved, you still say, oh, I'm trying to be. Hallelujah. I need you to know and be sure and very sure that God has marked you because you have accepted Jesus as your personal Savior. That's what this grand multitude is, and we're going to see it a little later. Then we get to uh, chapter 8, and now we're breaking the seventh seal. Uh, and as we break the seventh seal, these are now no more uh, uh, seals, but now we're getting into the seven trumpets. The angels are given the uh, trumpet. We called that sermon last week the quiet before the storm. And as the trumpets began to blow, we see that there were uh, more degradation happening on this earth. He says, when the first angel blew his trumpet, fire mixed with blood came down, and one-third of the earth was set on fire. One-third of the trees were burned to grass. There's, there's fire and smoke everywhere. One-third of the earth is on fire. Then he says, when the second angel blew his trumpet, a great mountain fell and was thrown into the sea, and one-third of the waters became blood, and one-third of the, all the living creatures in the sea died, and one-third of the ships was destroyed. Verse 10, he says, then the third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven. His name was Wormwood, or bitterness, and he destroyed one-third of the water where we get our drinking water from. Then in verse 12, he says, then the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and the sun was struck, one-third of the moon was struck, one-third of the stars were struck, so everything became dark. One-third of the day was dark, and one-third of the night was completely dark. Because you do know the stars and the moon govern the other night lights that govern the night. Then he says in verse 13, and that's where we stopped at that last, that last week, in verse 13 of chapter 8, and he says that he saw an eagle going through the air, and the eagle was saying, whoa, 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 because these last, remember seven trumpets, and we've only seen four blown so far. He says with the last three, trumpet number five, six, and seven, those are going to be terrible. You, in other words, he's saying you ain't seen nothing yet. So we get into chapter 9, uh, and the title of that sermon was, it's about to go down. And I ask Elder to put a period after each word, because I want you to say it just like that. It's about to go down. Hallelujah. So the fifth angel blows his trumpet, and the star that fell from the earth from the sky was given the key to the bottomless pit. And out of the bottomless pit arose smoke, and out of that smoke arose locusts. But the thing about the locusts this time is we understand that in the plague of Egypt, and locusts is something that's always been used as a plague, uh, but in uh, 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 apocryphy uh, writings, uh, prophetic writings, locusts are used as marching armies as well. And he says the locusts this time are not to destroy what they would normally destroy, that's the vegetation. This time the locusts was to harm the men, the human beings. Anybody that didn't have the mark of God in their forehead, the seal of God in their forehead. And then in verse 6 of chapter 9, it says that in those days, people was looking for death, but they couldn't find it. And we see that out of the bottomless pit came the king of the locusts, and his name was Abaddon, which is in Greek, uh, destroyer, destruction, and Apollyon, which is destroyer. And verse 12 tells us that this first woe, or this first terror, is now over. Then we get into the sixth angel blowing, and we see that four angels, when the sixth angel blew his trumpet, we see that four angels was released from the Euphrates 
uh, which is another term. They technically didn't come up out of the water as much as they were now allowed to cross over the Euphrates. The Euphrates River in historical value for the people of Israel, the uh, Euphrates was always a, a boundary where no one could cross. It was their, it was Jerusalem's or Israel's most farthest boundary, and no one, no army, no enemy could cross it. Well, he's saying here that four enemies are going to cross it at this time, and this is where he's telling us that there's going to be wars. Remember, he's writing these things symbolically because John is exiled on the Isle of Patmos, and he needed to get these revelations, these visions that he's seeing, he needed to get it back to the mainland to God's people. But fearing that the Romans would intercept his mail and begin to read it, he, in, in, in case they would intercept it, he wrote it in code symbolically. But the Jews, Hebrews, understood this language. They didn't need it interpreted for them. So as these beasts come out of the, uh, these angels come out of the Euphrates, they begin to now make war. And it says that, uh, verse 18, it says, one third of all people on earth were killed because of these uh, plagues that came out of the mouths of these locusts. They were killed by the plagues, by fire, smoke, and burning sulfur. But this, this was the amazing part. Uh, verse 20 of chapter 9, it says that the people who did not die in these plagues, remember now, there was a bunch of people that died. Uh, one third of the earth died. One third of all people on earth were killed. We get that from verse 18. But all those who didn't die, the two-thirds of the population that was left, look at what it says about them in verse 20. That they refused to repent. Now let me share with you what would make you refuse to repent from God's wrath. You've become too attached to this world. You've become too attached to your money, to your degrees, to your children, to your home to your job. You've become too attached to the world and you don't want to let go. So God is now offering us heaven. God is offering us eternal life. God is offering us safety. Just like Adam and Eve had in the garden, heaven is just like that garden. Matter of fact, some of the same articles that's in the garden is going to be in heaven. The tree of life, the river of, of life, the sea of glass, the streets of gold. Hallelujah. We're going to get a name that no man knows. Jesus said that in my father's house there's many mansions. Honey, we're going to turn all that down because we're going to refuse. Hallelujah. As he says here in verse 20 of chapter 9, he says that they refuse to repent. I'm telling you right now, when repentance is offered to you, don't you refuse it. Hallelujah. So we even see now, look at, look at when we go into, into chapter 10. Now, he says that he saw another mighty angel coming down, and uh, he, 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 he describes this angel as one. Now, let's, let's look at the description. Verse chapter 10, he says, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, surrounded by a cloud with a rainbow over his head. His face shone like sun, and his feet were like pillars of fire. Now, that's not Jesus, because that's a different definition. We already got what Jesus was like in, in chapter 1. So a lot of people like to say that this is Jesus. This is a, what, what did he call it? Look at verse uh, 1 again. And I saw an other mighty angel. So this can't be Jesus. Nowhere in scripture have you ever seen Jesus described as an angel. So chapter 10 of Revelation, this is not Jesus standing with one foot on the sea and one foot on the land. Hallelujah. 
it's another mighty angel. Hallelujah. And he says that he had another little scroll. Amen. So we already, we already dealing with the big scroll. Jesus had already opened up all seven seals on the scroll. Uh, John is now uh, having visions about the things that's written on the scroll. Because remember, the scroll was written on the front and the back. Amen. So this angel has a little scroll in his hand, and this little scroll was open. It didn't have any seals on it. It was open. In the angel's right hand. Somebody say in his right hand. And he says that when the angel was prepared, verse 3 says that the angel gave a shout like a roaring lion, and when he shouted, the seven thunders answered. But then we see in verse 4 that John was instructed not to write down what the seven thunders answered, and neither did John write down what the mighty angel shouted. So this is two bits of prophetic information that we don't even have because I think it's so profound God said, don't even write that down. I don't think they're going to be able to handle it. So with the angel roared and with the, with the seven thunders answered, we don't have a clue what that is. And it says that uh, he was instructed to take the book. Because look at what he says in verse 7 of chapter 10. He says, when the seventh angel blows his trumpet, God's mysterious plan will be fulfilled. It will happen just as he announced, just as he announced it to his servants, the prophets. So once that seven trumpet blow, y'all, when we get to the seven trumpet blow, that's going to be the end of your chances. But we see in chapter 10, let's look at uh, the last verse in chapter 10. Uh, he, matter of fact, let, let's slow down a little bit and look at verse 9. He begins <coughs> to tell John that the scroll, when John eat the scroll, John was instructed to eat the scroll. Some versions of the Bible say book, but it was actually a scroll back in ancient times. He said that when you eat the scroll, it's going to be sweet in your mouth. But once you swallow it, it's going to be bitter in your stomach. So the scroll now is obviously the word of God again, and I'm going to show you why I say that. But he says that it's going to be sweet in your mouth. And I can testify as a preacher, as a pastor, as, a, as an evangelist, as a prophet of God, I can tell you right now that the word is sweet in my mouth. I'm having a wonderful time right now teaching you the word. I love talking about the word. The word of God is my most favorite conversation. Anybody that knows me, when they see me coming, they're like, oh, Lord, it comes to God, man. All he's going to do is start talking about how good God is and how we need to change our ways so that we can spend eternity with God. And God sent his only begotten son into the world that whoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I'm going to start talking about God and how good God is. Hallelujah. Why? Because the word is sweet in my mouth. But let me tell you something about when I go to bed at night. When I lay down at night, I have to be able to look back over all those faces all day long who I talked to, who became downtrodden and downcast when I begin to talk about God. Because in this world we're living in, even through Christianity, today's vision <coughs> of Christianity, people realize they got problems and they realize that there's no way out. This is why we have such a grand number of depression and uh, suicide and uh, bipolarism and all of these uh, mental and psychosis diseases. Because people understand that their life is rough. I've gotten myself into some things and I can't get out. I can't buy my way out. My family done left me. And I have to realize that just like that rich young ruler, the Bible says that he walked away sad. And I have to watch people walk away sad every day. 
because they know they're not up to standard. But the only standard that we have to meet is to accept Christ as our provision, our revelation and perfection. That's the standard. And since it's so easy, back to that verse we read earlier, people are refusing to accept God's provision for their sin. We're refusing to do it. So understand that preachers have a good time talking about the word. But for every ordination service I've ever been to, Some of us, that's all it is. But some of us have a heart for the people that, that, that it hurts us. It, 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 it puts us almost in a state of depression to think about how people in our lives are refusing, refusing to accept the goodness of God. Watch this. You'll accept the goodness of God, but you won't praise and worship him. The Bible says that Jesus healed 10 of them, but only one came back to say thank you. We're going to accept his goodness, his love, his grace, and his mercy. We should at least have the audacity to come and tell him thank you. Hallelujah. Now, I said all that to get to this point today. <laughs> Amen. Today we're in Revelation chapter 11. Hallelujah. But just in case somebody wasn't watching, I just feel this burning desire that we would continue to share how we got here. Because somebody may just be watching today in Revelation chapter 11, and they still got all that weird thinking in their mind from that Protestant teaching about the book of Revelation from chapter 1 to, to 10. But, and I want to clear that up, so just bear with me. But now we're up to where we need to be in Revelation chapter 11. In Revelation chapter 11, now remember, the last thing that happened in chapter 10 is God, this is a matter of fact, let me read Revelation chapter 10 verse 11 real, real quick. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many people's nations, languages, and kings. That's how I know it was the word of God that was on that little scroll that was open. Because he's telling him, now that you've eaten it, go out and prophesy about it. It's in you. So when you open your mouth, that's what's going to come out. So once again, God has reached out and he's given his people an other chance. Another chance. He's the God of chances, y'all. Hallelujah. He continues to give chances. Have you seen how many chances that has been given just since we've been in Revelations? Now watch this. Chapter 12, I'm sorry, chapter 11, verse 1 says, Then I was given a measuring stick. And I was told, go and measure the temple of God. But this, this stick, this rod, this staff actually is the word that's there in the original language. It wasn't a stick that you would lay down or stand up for a plumb line to measure height, width, and depth. 
This was a rod, a staff that was given that you may seal or number God's. Watch this, watch this. He says, and go and measure the temple of God and the altar that sits before God. And watch this. Count the number of worship. Count the number of worshipers that's in the temple around the altar. Hallelujah. Now watch what he says here. In verse 2 he says, but this word but, he says, do not measure the outer courtyard. And he's, he's going to give us the reason why. But let me, let me show you something. This word but do not which in the, in, in the original uh, language in the Greek, this word do not, it comes, those two words are put together to form one uh, Greek word that, that says ekbalo. E-K-B-A-L-L-O. Ekbalo. That's the phonetic pronunciation. Ekbalo. And it means to cast out or to banish. It didn't just mean just pass over and act like they're not there. It actually means to cast them out or to banish them. So he said, don't measure the outer court, for it has been given. My living translation that I'm reading says nations, but when you read in some translation, it says Gentiles. In the outer court, and you know that to be true, uh, members of Sabbath rest, I, I teach you all the time that if you were to pull up a, a picture of the temple, you'll see that on the left-hand side and on the, on the outside, it was called the court of the Gentiles. Because remember, the Jews were so stiff-necked and arrogant, they wouldn't even let the Gentiles into the temple to worship with them. They had to worship outside. Now this confirms that when he says, measure the temple and everything that's inside the temple. In other words, that's a representative of the true people of God, the true worship of, of God. They're around the altar. You see, once again, God has identified some of his people. Ooh, hallelujah, I'm having fun up here. I don't know about you. We see now that in chapter 6 of Revelation, God identified those who are going to die for him. Those are the ones that's the mortars that's going to be under the throne. We also see that God has identified 144,000 people that's going to live for him. The Bible's going to tell us in chapter 14 of Revelation that they, they didn't defile their bodies in no kind of way. Hallelujah. They live for God. Amen. Also, he says that there was a great multitude that couldn't be numbered. Those are the ones who had faith in Jesus Christ. You ain't following no laws. You ain't even hardly live by the Bible. But you really believed in your heart that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. Hallelujah. And that he did raise from the third day. They got some folk coming to the church house that's far as they believe go. Hallelujah. Amen. Then he's now identified another group of people, those that's around the altar worshiping him in the temple. Those are called the true worshipers. How do you know that? Because he, he identifies the false worshipers. He said, don't, don't number, don't measure those that's in the outer court. Why? For it has been given to the Gentiles. Watch this. They will trample the holy city for 42 months. Now, 42 months is a prophetic time. 42 months, watch this. Let me, let me keep reading. I want to couple two things together. For 40, the Gentiles are going to trample the holy city for 42 months. Now, I want you to understand, these people think that they're working for God. Verse, verse 3, and I will give 
Now, in verse 3, some of our versions got the word power there. I will give power. But when you look this text up in the original language, in the Greek, the word power is not there. The word power was added for English understanding. He says that I will give, I'm not, I'm going to read it how it's written in the original text. I'm going to take the word power out because I want to make a point. I will give to my witnesses and they will be clothed in burlap and will prophesy during those 1,260 days, 1,260 days he calls it now. Now these are prophetic times. 42 months, 1,260 days, time, times, and half time all mean the same thing. They all mean three and a half years. And three and a half is half of the fulfillment number of seven. So when we talk about the tribulation, we've been taught that the tribulation is going to come in three and a half years, and the great tribulation is going to be three and a half years, but three and a half plus three and a half equals the perfect number seven, or the completed number seven. So the reason that I say that is really not the power that's going to be talked about in a minute that God said that he gave his uh, apostles, what he said is, I will give to my witnesses. What he's going to give to his witnesses is what Luke talks about in Luke chapter 10, verse 1 through 12, when he sends them out two by two, and he says, don't take nothing for your trip. God is saying here that the world is not going to have to feed my two prophets because I'm going to feed them. The world is not going to have to take care of my two prophets because I'm going to take care of them. God knew that the world would take care of them because what they're going to prophesy, the world is not going to like. So God is saying here that I'm going to be your substance. I'm going to give you what you need. Go read Luke chapter 10, verse 1 through 12, when Jesus sent them out two by twos, and then you'll understand when the English translators put the word power there, they had the wrong mindset in their mind because what God is not saying is that I'm going to give them powers and we're going, to be, we're going to read the powers in a few minutes that they have. But that ain't what he's talking about because you'll see that this giving is totally separate from the powers that they're going to manifest in a few minutes when we begin to read it. So what God is saying in verse 3 is I will give you your substance. I will give you your daily food. I will give you your protection. Hallelujah. So he says now, he's also going to be clothed in burlap. That's another reason I know that he's talking about their substance. Because in the Bible, in Old Testament books, we understood that the word burlap is another word for sackcloth. So when any time anybody was in a repentant mode, uh, in the book of Job, we see when Job was mourning over his children, the Bible says he put on sackcloth and ashes. We see that when Jonah finally made it to Nineveh, that the king of Nineveh had all the people put on sackcloth and ashes. And this word that I'm reading in the New Living Translation, burlap, this word really in other translations, you'll see that the word sackcloth is there. So in other words, these prophets are going to be just like uh, Elijah and uh, uh, Isaiah and John the Baptist. They're going to live by very minuscule means. They won't be rich. They won't be living a lavish lifestyle. They're going to have what burlap and sackcloth uh, imply is that it's rough against your skin. So they're going to be in denial. 
Let me tell you something about real people of God. And you talked about it this morning in Sabbath school. God's true people, Jesus say, I didn't come to be served, I came to serve. So whenever you have a leader in the church that's always looking to be uh, applauded and always looking to be living the rich life, he always wants something from the church, the church got to buy you a car, the church got to do this for you, and you always, that's not what true people of God, true people of God live by meager means. And it says that he's going to wear burlap and he's going to prophesy for three and a half years. Remember, 42 months. 1260 days, time, times, and a half time, all of that means three and a half years. So in verse four, he says now, these two prophets, everybody say two prophets, are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord on the earth. Now, we have to go back to other prophetic writings to understand who and what he's talking about. Now. In historical apocryphy writings, it has always been surmised that these two prophets, uh, I believe, my teaching has taught me that the two prophets is Enoch and Elijah. Now, a lot of people believe that it's Moses and Elijah because of the Mount of Transfiguration, the story about uh, Jesus and a few of the apostles at the Mount of Transfiguration, where two prophets showed up and talked to Jesus. That was Moses and Elijah. So that could be right. Uh, the reason I was taught about Enoch and Elijah, because neither one of them saw death, they were both translated into heaven. But the true point of the text is not even really to figure out who the two prophets are anyway. And that's what I was saying last week about the Protestant teaching of Revelation. It taught us to focus on things that don't even really matter. It's just like a good word math problem. When I teach the children about word math problems, I teach them the first thing you have to do is find out the information that's important and the information that's just in them fulfilling. And some information in Revelation is not to be interpreted. Find the main point. And the main point doesn't matter who the two prophets are, let's see what they're going to be able to do. So in verse 5, we go on to show uh, if anyone tries to harm them, fire flashes from their mouths and consumes their enemies. He's talking about the word of God, y'all. He ain't talking about two prophets that's going to be breathing fire. They're going to do just like Jesus did the devil in the wilderness. I want you to understand that Jesus whipped the devil with scripture. And if you want to win some spiritual battles in your life, you're going to have to learn some scripture and stand on it. Not only learn the scripture so you can quote them and impress people, but learn the scripture so that you can impress God and you can stand on the scripture. When things go to falling down all around you, you say, I'm standing on the word of God. When the doctor gives you a diagnosis in your body, you say, I'm standing on the word of God, that he is the God who heals us. When your children begin to leave home and become wayward, you say, I'm standing on the word of God because it said if I train them up in the way that they should go, that when they depart, they will come back. Hallelujah. You got to learn not only to learn scripture, you got to learn how to stand on scripture. Somebody shout hallelujah. So we see here that they are shooting fire. They're shooting the word of God from their mouth to wipe out any enemy, anybody that tries to come up to you and talk you down, 
to say God ain't real, the Ronald Reagan Juniors of the world, we can knock down uh, 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 agnosticism, we can knock down atheism by just speaking the word of God, because just as Elder pointed out this morning, if you ain't scared to burn in a hell, since you do know there's a hell, you've got to know that there's the opposite of hell, which is heaven, and if you believe that there's a hell and a heaven, you've got to believe that there's a God, and if you believe that there's a heaven, and you believe that there's a hell, and you believe that there's a God, I believe you're being fooled by the devil. Hallelujah. So it says that they are going to be consuming their enemies. He says, this is how anyone who tries to harm them must die. They're going to die by the power of the word of God. Verse 60 says, they have power to shut the sky so that no rain will fall as long as they are prophesied. And they have the power to turn rivers and oceans into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they wish. Now, one good thing I notice is the Bible really never showed us where they had to. But they had the power to do it if they needed to. Now, watch this. Remember now, in chapter 10, the writer was given a small book to eat that was he was told at the end to go and prophesy. So it had to be the word of God that was on the scroll that he ate. Because now he's going to prophesy. Now we got two witnesses uh, that's now prophesying and speaking the word of God to the people. Now watch this, verse 7. When, everybody say when. Once again, that's a time-sensitive word. When they had completed their testimony, when they had completed you see, let me tell you something about the devil. The devil cannot stop God's plan. Woo! The devil cannot stop God's plan. The devil was mad about the two witnesses. The devil hated they was going around prophesying about Jesus. The devil, but watch this. The devil couldn't stop them. He had to wait till they were finished doing what they were sent to do. Verse 7 says, when they complete their testimony, the beast that came up out of the bottom of this pit, will declare war against them once God's job was done. Now I want to show you this about this book of Revelation. It is only the evil that's written in symbolism. Everything that's written about what God's going to do, that's written in reality. God is going to do it. But all of the things that the enemy is going to bring up, he uses a beast. But really, it's not a beast. I'm not going to talk much about the beast right now because when we get into chapter 13, I'm going to describe the beast specifically to you. But I will let you in on a little bit of a secret. The beast is representative of governments. Hallelujah. The beast is representative of governments, powers, rulers, and kings. And we're going to see that when we get to chapter 13. He says, the beast that comes up from the bottomless pit. Now, Let's go back real quick to the bottom of this pit. Now, I can't make a point here, but I want to point this out right here. So, when the bottom of this pit was open, it says that smoke came out. When the smoke cleared, locusts was everywhere. Then it gets down to uh, uh, verse 11, and it says their king is the angel from the bottom of this pit. Now, notice it didn't call him a beast in chapter 9 came out of the bottom of this pit. And his name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek is Apollyon. So now we have here, uh, in chapter 
11, verse 7, we have a beast that comes up out of the bottomless pit. I cannot confirm or deny that that's not the same animal. It's just in chapter 9, he's called one thing, and in chapter 10, he's called the beast. The king, the king, their angel. He's called an angel in chapter 9, but in chapter 11, he's called the beast. And I'm not confirming or denying that that's not talked about the same animal. Nevertheless, let's move on. 